No, I can't I can't do that um for the whole thing because um it's tuneless and exhausting, uh, which could go on my gravestone. Uh, hello, I'm Matt Risby and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, um a podcast which is about films and TV and all that stuff um, in um, a break from the norm. Um, it's me on my own because Ed and Emily um, don't watch Game of Thrones. So um, I think Emily left uh, the show fairly early on and Ed stuck it out to the penultimate season before realising it was all a bit rich for him, uh, which is totally fair enough. Um, um, I accept that. Um, and he's allowed a pass. So... Uh, it's just me this week, but who wants to listen to just one person um, talking? I certainly don't want to listen to me talking, um, so I don't think you do either. So uh, I put the feelers out uh, for contributors and on Twitter and through my various networks to see who would come out of the woodwork to discuss Game of Thrones, and we did get a lovely little gang of people on um, to discuss it, but I must um, kind of caveat this whole thing um, by saying that we didn't manage to get a single woman contributor on the show which is something that I really wanted um, and I felt like I pushed really hard for uh, unfortunately we just couldn't make it happen um, and it's I'm going to take the blame for it because uh, if you can't get just one woman to appear on your show to talk about Game of Thrones you're probably not trying hard enough um, and even though I felt like I did really try uh, it can't be that difficult so I shall endeavour to do better in the future um, because the reason I wanted to get uh, a woman on the show is that Graham of Thrones has got a lot of problems um, when it comes to um, women in front of the camera, um, women behind the camera, especially on the writing staff, the directing teams, um, and the use of things like sexual violence as a plot device. It's a whole kind of hornet's nest. And I just wanted to say that we, in this episode, don't discuss a lot of those issues because I felt, personally, it would be fairly disingenuous to do that from an all-male perspective. So um, you won't be hearing discussion of that, but you will hear me now saying that's why. Because the world doesn't need more takes from straight white men about stuff. So, yeah, that's why you're not going to hear a lot of that stuff. You will hear a fun uh, kind of conversation about Game of Thrones and all sorts of, you know, divergences. But we won't be talking about that. And that's why. And, you know, I hope you, you kind of feel like that's fair enough. Um, so without further ado, here is a bunch of straight white dudes talking about Game of Thrones. So um, in the spirit of the episode in Game of Thrones where they assemble a crew of fucking randos who all <laughs> have to have no business together to go north of the wall and capture a white walker, I find myself joined by a similar crew of uh, disparate randos. Who have I got? Hi, I'm Lewis. Um, I'm a history teacher. I'm pretty deeply into Game of Thrones, I would say. I've read all the books. I've followed the show pretty, well, like, obviously completely religiously. And um, I'm sort of at the stage where I, like, own a lot of the kind of extra stuff as well. Like, I'm quite into my Night of the Seven Kingdoms and a world of ice and fire and stuff like that. Mm, cool. Okay, who else we got next? So, I'm Rob Miles. I'm a professional actor who does quite a bit of stage combat. I'm coming at this from a sort of action perspective. I have only ever seen Game of Thrones, the series. I haven't read a single one of the books. Uh, I have been a massive fan throughout the run of the show. Uh, and, yes, it gave us some interesting things to discuss. I would call it a meaty final season. 
Mm-hmm. And last but not least... Uh, hello, uh, my name is Pip Mason. Uh, I am a stand-up comedian and writer, uh, or I think I am. I tell people I am, uh, so that means it's true. Uh, I have only ever watched the TV series. I have not read the books because books that are over 900 pages long scare me uh, ever since trying to read the Wheel of Time series, and it broke my mind. Uh, oh, and I've also played the Telltale Adventure game, uh, and that is about my connection with game of thrones unfortunately okay uh well everyone knows who i am uh hopefully um unless you're friends of one of these lot and listening to the uh the show for the first time but full disclosure um i've seen all of the show obviously that'd be kind of silly if we were recording the show and i hadn't um i've read the first book but after i'd seen the show and i was like hey it was a pretty solid adaptation i think watching the show is quicker um so i gave up on on reading anymore um and beyond that my personal connection was that the guy the actor who plays sir alistair came into my work for breakfast and i served him food that was it that was uh, that's really where my relationship with game of thrones ends that's the, uh, that's still quite the claim to fame yeah well i mean yeah, he wasn't like one of the big ones, you know what I mean? But he was still all right. He, uh, he likes fried chicken. That's all I'll tell you. Um, that's nice. I met Did, him. Yeah. I met him at a... Um, he was in a play with that Neil Kinnock came to. So I met Sir Alistair and Neil Kinnock in the same evening. <laughs> Are they friends? Was Neil um, Kinnock... Did he take the black or something? Or Yeah, like that's, that's sort of a fairly accurate description of Neil Kinnock's career, isn't it? Sort of mm. moving into infamy after a big fuck-up. So, okay, season eight of Game of Thrones, I believe uh, it's safe to say, is a wildly popular television show um, on the HBO network. Uh, came to a close last night or, you know, the night before if you're stateside. And it's been a fairly divisive season, um, to say the least. Uh, we have seen some kind of moderately tempered discourse about what could have gone right or wrong with the show. Um, and perhaps some not-so-reasonable discourse about, you know, crying man-babies trying to get the show remade, um, which has regrettably become part of the course now for, um, you know, uh, kind of properties that are beloved but by the wrong people. <laughs> they seem to be the worst people come crawling out of the walls for these things, which is, like, deeply upsetting. Um, so, uh, first of all, Lewis, where did you stand... On season eight, in and then on the entire Game of Thrones as a whole, um, I'm in the camp of four pretty good episodes and mm-hmm. two really, really disappointing ones. I think like the penultimate and final episodes, I found uh, like pretty meritless. Um, I think the whole thing. I was funny. I what did you? There was somebody put up on Twitter. A thing of like one second from every episode of Game of Thrones. The big thing I took away from that is how good season three was. Mm. And because season three hooked you in and you'd sort of bought a house together, you didn't really acknowledge that the sort of the, the light had gone out of one another's eyes a little bit. Things <laughs> had gone on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, and I think it remained a good show. Like, at no point have I got to the point where I'm like, I want a divorce. But. I think you can forget how magic it was when it was really good and you kind of end up accepting a kind of some really sort of like it's it's basically fine or occasionally a really good episode post season three, post season Mm. four. Yeah. Yeah. So basically comparing Game of Thrones to 
a kind of like life partner that you signed a legal contract with that you are thinking twice about pushing down the stairs? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Like, I've had kids with Game of Thrones, and obviously we love them dearly. So you know. <laughs> Just stay like, together for the kids. Yeah, That's all you like, need to do. Are any of them called Khaleesi? Because that will be unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, Rob, how did you find last season as a whole? Oh, wow. Uh <laughs> I, yeah, just just a long sustained uh, guttural groan. I think. I, I think. I think people have people have been fair, or Lewis has been fair in saying that uh, the first couple of episodes started very hopefully, uh, but it did start to fall off a very steep precipice uh, for me in the in the back half and the kind of final three episodes. Um, for me, it was really, and you know, you'll see you'll see a thousand takes like this online, but it is that difference between. Uh, creating moments as a consequence of character decisions or mm-hmm. throwing character logic out the window in favour of getting the moments that you wish would happen. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, the back half of the season felt partly like an audition for Disney uh, and partly like a kind of fan filming all their favourite moments. So you've got Children mm-hmm. of Men and Star Wars and all these other kind of things that feel really kind of pushed on top of Game of Thrones and the fight back three episodes. Um, and yeah, it was, it was fine, I guess. I mean, they got to the end, um, in a way that, you know, obviously satisfied almost no one. Um, (laughs) but it, yeah, it was, it was frustrating, I would say. And I I lay that at the door of the writing more than anything else. Cause I do want to say in its defense that it was probably one of the best shot and certainly most ambitious by a factor um, mm-hmm. series of Game of Thrones ever. Um, and it just goes to show the importance of writing and storytelling to making that stuff matter. Because for me, unfortunately, a lot of it didn't by the time mm-hmm. it happened. Yeah. Uh, Pip, what have you got? Uh, overall, I, I think the final series uh, with the ultimate ending is fine. It was it. It was fine. I mean, there was some truly great bits. Um, like I think you already touched on it, Rob. Like the cinematography in some episodes were absolutely beautiful. Like as in, that's where the money's gone. Mm. Clearly, in in a lot of that, there were some truly great moments. There were some like meh moments. Um, but I honestly believe, like, I, I, okay, I can understand where some of this reaction has come from um because well it doesn't help that this is like the biggest tv show probably ever of all time in terms of like budget scale scope stars like everything so people are probably gonna react a bit more than they normally would but i do think the sort of backlash if you want to call it that is a bit misdirected uh, which again, mm. Rob has highlighted a bit already. It's like they're not upset at the plot or even anything that happened. What they're actually upset with is the pacing. Mm-hmm. It's I on, I honestly believe, like with how this season has gone, with all the story beats, beat for beat, if it was stretched out over like a full ten ep- like full season, ten mm. episodes, or even like some people have argued, you should have had one season for the Night King one season for how do we solve a problem like Danny. And I think it would have been maybe received a bit better because some of the, like, it's going so quick that the development's just happening. We're not seeing it develop, 
if mm-hmm. if you get what I mean. Yeah. So I think that over like in terms of actual plot and the ending we got, I thought honestly it was fine. It was an ending. There have been series that ended way worse. <laughs> but I just think it's it's the pace that we got there. Mm. is truly the problem. You could just feel it, especially towards the end. It's almost like they were just desperate to get this finished and done mm. and in the can. Yeah. And 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 to kind of to play devil's advocate slightly, the makers of the show are backed into a corner essentially by having to end the show because they can't keep that cast together forever. They cannot afford to keep making this show no matter how much money it makes because it I mean, this last season, what was it? $100 million for six episodes? That is insane, the amount of money that that costs. The scale of the production, the ambition of what they're doing um, meant that, you know, whatever they did, they had to wrap it up in two seasons, really, no matter what. And I think... um, And television contracts are different. You're paid by the episode count rather than by how long you're in something. So you can put out 75, 80-minute episodes and it still counts as one episode. Mm -hmm. So you are in this situation where the writers of... And this is where I take umbrage with a little bit of the criticism of the writers because they're the same fucking writers. Do you know what I mean? They they delivered seasons one through six. Obviously, there it was. Fair to say, uh, In I can't remember which season it is, the one with the House of Black and White. Uh, Was it six? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it's fair to say that was maybe a season that was spent wheel spinning. <laughs> um, <laughs> they they were they were uh, um, drumming their feet. There was Sonic the Hedgehog tapping their toe for for something to happen, but it's still the same writers, and we know that they can deliver excellent stuff in the first four seasons. But they really kind of got themselves into a position where they thought they could end something in a very quick amount of time. And when you go from a show that's very measured, very uh, deliberately paced, uh, is a lot of people just kind of talking pure subtext for like, you know, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And then you hop into uh, the last two seasons where it is just plot, 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 and action. And that is all it is. You lose the character. You lose, like Rob pointed out, the logic of where the people come from. Um, there was an, a really great... Um, thread going around twitter you probably all saw it um about the the difference between different types of writers being plotters and panthers yeah Did you I all see that, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a really good thread at, like yeah, and the, the, the dissonance we're getting from the game of thrones is that we've got one show which is um an adaptation of the the most rigid planner uh sorry the most uh fly by the seat of your pants plotter which is uh uh, uh George R. R. Martin, um, just letting his characters develop and you know make their own decisions organically, um, but then after six seasons of that, forcing it into a set point and it has to end there, and nothing feels satisfying when it gets there. But like Pip said, over twenty episodes, everything that happened in the last how long was the previous season? Was it eight? Uh, the previous season was eight. This one was seven. Was it six? Six. 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 Yeah. Oh, even shortened that. Mm. Yeah. So I think we, if we would have had twenty episodes to tell the story we got in fourteen, you know, things like um, Jamie Lannister's uh, sudden turnaround might have seemed more organic or 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 more kind of in keeping with the character who spent pretty much six seasons having a 
solely believable redemption arc <laughs> to then just to just chuck it out of the window in one scene. Now again, I don't particularly blame the writers for this. I blame blame the circumstances. They could have got Paddy Chayefsky in to write this, yeah. but they said if you got fourteen episodes to do it, son, they're probably going to be much the same result. At the end of the day, you have Cersei, who is like this absolutely central character. Everybody's really engaged with, and I think in that entire season. Mm-hmm. Every line she spoke could have been said by one of the people from the Trade Federation in Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> they were like purely expositionary kind of the baddies are coming lines, weren't they? Like, mm-hmm. no, nothing happened with mm-hmm. her character whatsoever. Could I just jump in on this as well and say that for Tyrion, especially for me, in the last two episodes, but maybe even further back than that, every single thing he said was addressed to the audience and in some mm-hmm. cases uh, sounded pretty much exactly the same as the speculation that had gone on uh, on Twitter in between the two episodes, mm-hmm. almost <laughs> word for word. Um, and that just gave you a real sense of how perfunctory and, I guess, utilitarian the dialogue mm-hmm. had become when we were so used to as you said, you know, a 15-minute scene to make one point subtextually. Just Mm. such a jarring change of tone that then the character has to kind of make excuses for, and again, make excuses to the audience even, not even the sort of other characters that they're sharing the space with. Mm. I think that, for me, the biggest indicator of where we were for that was the scene in episode five, or it might have been four, actually, where Varys and Tyrion are deciding that they're talking about openly about whether or not Danny's right or wrong. And this is a conversation. If that would have happened in season two or three, they would have talked around it. And at the end you'd be like, Oh shit. Did one of them suggest they were going to stab Danny in the back? But in this, they were just like, I'm going to do this for this reason. I think it's this reason and you are wrong. And it was just like, it was really perfunctory, like kind of just hit the marks dialogue so we can get to the next scene. Like, a friend of mine summed it up for me, and again, I, I've been analysing and looking at it, is he loves the story, but he hates how it's been told. Mm. Uh, again, with the with the pacing and stuff. And I was thinking more about it, and again, I think the thing which people really endeared people to Game of Thrones is because how the story worked, it was character-drove plot. Mm-hmm. Like, when Ned Stark dies in season one, spoiler alert, Ned Stark dies <laughs> in season one, all the way from the first episode up until right until the sword drops, you can tell like from his actions, what he said and everything, how he got in that position, and more importantly, how he cannot get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, he has led to that point. And then as the seasons go on, it reaches a certain point... Um, Maybe some cynical people could say when they stopped adapting books, plots started driving characters. So that's how you suddenly had all your exposition, uh, people being dragged by the nose because that's where they need to be in a certain place at a certain time because a certain thing is happening. And it destroyed a lot of the characterization and build-up that they had from previous seasons. My one point is, like I said, I I thought this season was fine. However, the one point that I truly hated, going back to what you referenced, is Varys suddenly becoming a fucking idiot (laughs) (laughs) when he's been presented for the most of the entire series as the smartest man in Westeros. He's so 
scheming and conniving, and it's a true battle of wits. He suddenly decides, oh, I'm going to commit treason in front of everyone, in fr- <laughs> like on the beach, where the person I'm doing the treason against is watching from a balcony. There's an excellent um, podcast called a, a Podcast of Ice and Fire, and they've been, um, which is like a, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, and one of the things they've done or said to kind of make peace with the TV series is that the TV series is a Game of Thrones, so it's mm-hmm. focused on character, like the Game of Thrones, the combat between these different forces, these different people. And the, the book series is A Song of Ice and Fire, it's about, like, it's this idea of, like, there's this metaphysics, this universe of ice versus fire going on in the, in, in the background. And all of this kind of human stuff is almost like a sort of Lovecraftian thing where there's these epic kind of unfathomable forces beyond the wall and all of this petty kind of, in, like, human interaction um, doesn't, doesn't really matter. And I think... One of the problems that they've got with all of that, with all of the, the character interaction, is even if it was done well, it still feels really weird to finish with the Night King and then have three more episodes. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, even if the, the writing had been better or the, the pacing had been slower, I feel like it's like something needs, needed to have been done to reflect the fact that, like, the the sort of the climax of dealing with this thing which the the tv series had bought into everything up until that point had like bought into the idea that the the night king was the real problem and mm-hmm. then you've got to this point where the night king's dead and that's when the wheels fall off the truck because creating a satisfying climax beyond that particularly in three episodes was going to be impossible and they kind of ran out of rail we're, like they could go on pretending that's not the way the the sort of the story in the background was shaped, but then ultimately you run out of rails with two episodes to go. I think for sure, for sure, and it's that that elemental scale, that yeah. paradox of scale, where you're going to something that is supernatural, environmental, apocalyptic, and going. Oh, anyway, we don't need to worry about that anymore. Who's going to yeah. sit on this chair? Like it's just never going to matter as much as what's already been before. Yeah, in terms of scope of issues, the literal end of the world kind of pips whoever sits on the spiky chair. Yeah, mm. and they were and they absolutely played into that up until in in series seven, where they were like, "We need to not worry about this and focus on the other thing." And the whole point is, Cersei could never bring herself to do that. And then everybody goes, oh, no, actually, Cersei's right. This is the really important thing. That was another one where, for me, the logic of the show kind of... The internal logic of the show fell apart because it feels like a show that has always punished characters all the time for short-sightedness and self-interest. So Rob Stark marries for love, shanked. And yet Cersei is sitting there drinking wine in the Caribbean paradise uh, (laughs) and she is completely correct to have done so and comes out better than anyone else as a result. And it it really just felt to me like it flew in the face of everything that they'd established before, which is that if you are going to get comeuppance, it is going to be for failing to see the bigger picture, which they Mm. kind of circle back around to again in the ending of the final episode as well, because, of course, that's who they end up picking 
to sit on the Iron Throne is the guy who sees the biggest of the big pictures. Um, mm. Which, if I can have an aside for a moment, for me was the most spectacular example of the ridiculous writing trying to have its cake and eat it. Of, <laughs> um, Tyrion unanimously managing to move all of the lords of Westeros that have survived to uh, elect this king who no one has heard of, cares about, has done nothing to progress anything, has no achievements that anybody knows about. Uh, but they all vote for him, yes. And then the very next thing Tyrion says is, oh, don't listen to me, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Well, he said that before as well. That mm. like, oh, I say words, no one listens to me. But if you would just listen to me for this one moment, <laughs> I've seen a great take. Of, uh, they essentially uh, break down all of the key moments from season uh, seven and eight of all of the catastrophic mistakes that uh, Tyrion's led Danny into. And then when Danny stops listening to him, he's like, oh, no, she's a mad queen. We've got to stop her. <laughs> but not before she stopped listening to him just make mistake after mistake after mistake. Mm, yeah, she had quite a lot of patience with him for someone yeah, who for completely sure. um, drained her resources. Um, in terms of that reveal, then, of Bran being the the being the one to sit on the throne um as it were the, the throne that isn't there anymore because the dragon melted it in a spectacularly on the nose um, <laughs> kind, of, kind of moment it's cool though because um, he brought his own throne with him and it's mobile so yeah 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 well at least it's now because they leveled the whole place it is now wheelchair accessible which is, <laughs> you know, um um but yeah i mean i will say this for it i did not see that coming Fair. No. Yeah, it's it's a swerve. It was definitely a swerve, I guess. Yeah, I, and I, I will say, because I, I feel like, you know, we could easily talk for an hour and rag on the show, but I will say that the um, I felt personally um, that the ending of the show for John was perfect because yeah. there's yeah. something that is kind of deliciously funny to me anyway about the person who is actually the king um, being banished from the kingdom. <laughs> He's not even allowed in it, but he is also then allowed to be king in the only place that will accept him yeah yeah and he's and gone I, back I, to, I, to where his girlfriend was when the show was really good which is like yeah. like a real sort of I, I enjoyed that for me it was it was when uh, the fire when she went mad queen and, and immolated the entirety of king's landing and the look mm -hmm. on his face as that was happening and, and the helplessness <laughs> i just thought Yes, he's finally said, fuck it, this place doesn't deserve me. Like, this is the worst place. Humans are the worst. I'm going to go where it's, you know, hard life, rugged survival. We've got to work together because otherwise we'll die. It's a simple life. It's a life I understand. I'm out. And I thought that idea of Jon Snow actually just doing a mic drop and saying, fuck it, I'm out of here. That definitely, for me, was the best ending that that character could have hoped for, for sure. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. he's and he's still wondering, like, did he do the right thing? And as he should, because well, it was a very complicated issue, and he yeah. dealt with it the only way he thought he could. But was it right? Don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Mm. As Tyrion yeah. says, we'll see in ten years. I hope. Th I hope that isn't a nod to any spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I also felt like kind of Sansa, kind of. Ended up where I thought she would, but the journey wasn't quite as exciting, um, given that, it, you know, in season seven, or is it six, where they dispose of uh, Littlefinger, um, I felt like, oh, shit, she's actually now an interesting character rather than this kind of passive um, uh, kind of, like, thing that's just being passed around to benefit the mm. plot, um, which is a problem. Um, 
Um, I thought, oh, yeah, she's finally good. But it was only had flashes and it was like, oh, she's going to end up Queen of the North. And you kind of knew that from quite early on. It didn't feel like a very exciting journey for her in this last season. She felt a little bit like a passenger. I kind of thought she was going to end up on the throne. I thought that's where it was going. Right, right up until yeah. they said Bran. I was like, I think it's going to be Sansa. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, people with like more of a granular understanding of it and book readers and stuff, but uh, I, my understanding was that she was still married to Tyrion. Uh, the marriage was never consummated, so I don't know if by their law it counts. Because that's, that's how they married her off to Ramsay. Right. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. Right. Because my thinking was that, like, the Starks and the Lannisters, who are, like, the absolute um, enemies uh, in the first season, would then end up united through those two, and that would unite the Seven Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but did anyone else think that Sansa just randomly breaking off the North in front of, like, Dawn and the Ironborn and people like that, did that feel a little bit dangerous, like a bit of a low-key... Um, endorsement of Brexit almost. <laughs> like, oh, we're going to be we're gonna be fine on our own, and everyone else uh, is like, "Oh, maybe we'll be fine on our own too." It yeah. just it seems so catastrophically, again, short-sighted that that would somehow work out well. I yeah, think I've got that Brexit feel of people going, "Oh, oh, is, is that an option actually? Oh, I'll have that as well," and like <laughs> peeling off as well. Yeah, it's when Sam said he was going to give the the decision to the people. I was like, yeah. "Oh, no, too soon. It's too soon." Man. <laughs> I I think it's definitely a knock against Bran to say he's qualified to be king because literally the first thing he does is give away one of the kingdoms (laughs) (laughs) to his sister. No conflict of interest there at all. (laughs) Trumpian. Yeah. Um, And, you know, for someone who can't, he can kind of see into the mind of any living creature by the by the sounds of it. But then when his sister asks what's uh, east of Westeros or... Is it west of Westeros or east of Westeros? What, west going? of Westeros. And he doesn't know. I mean, just get into a fucking seagull, mate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you can find it. Or a fish. <laughs> it's Frodo, though, isn't it? That's what? where Frodo and Gandalf are now. It's like... Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I actually havens. thought when Jon said goodbye to the Starks, that was almost like a shot for shot of Frodo going to the Undying yeah. Lands at the end of Return of the King. Um, I was very surprised to see the Aran boy there. And I was like, "Is that? did we last see him... I was wondering where he was. There's a lot yeah. of thirst on Twitter for that guy now as well. Yeah. And, and a big endorsement for breastfeeding, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, breastfeeding into the teens. Um, yeah. Well, you've got him, you've got Tormund. It's yeah. like they're pro-breastfeeding. You know, it makes you strong, makes you handsome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anyone else apart from John that we think this show did right by? Uh, again, I think the pacing affected it a little bit, but I do think out of all the characters who got the most rounded arc and ended quite well was uh, Brienne. Yeah, nice. Yeah, um, although I'm, I'm enjoying the memes of people saying what she was really writing. <laughs> oh, oh the, memes are, the memes are wonderful. They're great, yeah. but still, I just thought from where she started when we were introduced her to where she reaches now, it's, it, you know, that's a really good arc. You know, she's gone from um, just like a general's dog's body to like going out on an adventure mm. to being saved by Jamie. So she learns a bit more about him. She mm-hmm. then like beats the hound, you know, falls in love, even though she doesn't really know how to interpret it, survives a zombie horde and is now like the first female knight in Westeros and the head of all the knights. So mm, amazing. Yeah. Also fought a bear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about the bear. Yeah. Mm. Samuel like, Tarley for me. 
Yeah. Samuel Tarly got a great arc, and uh, they kind of sum it up in this season with the you know Samuel Tarly, uh, Slayer of White Walkers, lover of women. <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> uh, and then he ends up being Archmaester and he's kind of got some proto-scientific kind of medical advice about water treatment and stuff like that. Mm. And I was like, that seems a pretty great place for that guy to end up. I thought like, I thought that's where he would end up as a maester, you know, and he would compile the book that was The Song of Ice and Fire. However, uh, that there was at least a couple of moments in the Battle of Winterfell I thought he was going to cop it. Mm. Uh, where, well, mainly, you know, that moment where John runs in, he sees his, like, friend literally crying his ass off as he's in, like, a pile of zombies. And then, rather than save him, I thought he uh, he then ran off to try and get to Bran, and I thought that was going to be the consequence. It's like he's chosen his family over his best friend, and as a result, his best friend dies. But no, he he was fine. Everyone's <laughs> fine. What you yeah. said sounds to me like what a previous season would have done for sure. Definitely, <laughs> it does feel like that, doesn't it? That the the sort of the consequences of people's actions, which used to be very like the. Uh, you know, it's that idea of like people being plot armoured, and Game of Thrones did really well for not plot armouring people. But mm-hmm. it does feel like as you, the the cast became made up only of fan favourites, people started to like sort of get out of situations that would have killed them in the past. Nice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, again, that's that's the switch of the storytelling going. Mm-hmm. Like again, like right at the very beginning, like if your face was on the box, it didn't matter. <laughs> like like Sean Sean Bean is on the front of the box set of Game of Thrones. Now he's gone. Mm. Whereas now it's like if your face is on the box, you are you have plot armor. You mm. are protected can, until you encounter another character who is also on the box <laughs> and are more popular and they will be it's basically become an anime. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's basically how animes work. So, mm. but, um, and again, I, I just, I thought at least a couple more of the characters in the Battle of Winterfell would have copped it. But mm. th- again, they, when they were just surrounded by hordes of zombies, it's like, no, they're, they're fine because they need to die later, probably. Mm. I don't know. I, I think th- this goes back to the durability of the characters. But Rob, you won't remember this. Um, but <laughs> this was years ago when Game of Thrones might have been like maybe second or third series. And I think you asked me, um, are you watching it? And I said, oh, the the thing with Sean Bean in. And you just kind of made this grimacey face. And I was like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I didn't expect that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, just touching on the Battle of Winterfell, it seems like a natural segue to talk about the show's ambition in this season and the scope of some of the action that they um, pulled off or maybe didn't. Um, and the idea that I think I read that the Battle of Winterfell was like, you know, hands down one of the most expensive battles filmed for any medium. And if you think that some of the, the battles we've seen in, in recent years, so in the kind of post Lord of the Rings boom, where the, the, uh, the kind of, um, uh, the, there's a, an appetite for seeing, you know, large scale fights with mixtures of like live action and, and CGI kind of padding the numbers. That's quite an impressive feat that they actually managed to do that. Um, but Rob, how successfully did they pull off some of the action in this 
um, this season from a professional's perspective? Sure thing. So what I'd like to make clear up front is that I am not a professional in large-scale action. Um, <laughs> I am not a military strategist of any kind. However, I have uh, read some uh, sort of articles and stuff written by military strategists that have broken down uh, these episodes and the tactics that have been used, which kind of speaks mm-hmm. to the crazy level that Game of Thrones has got to culturally that these people are taking time to do that. Um, but for me... I tend to specialise in one-on-one action, and that traditionally is where the show's fallen down hard. And Mm -hmm. uh, really that's to do with... Keanu Reeves is talking about it a lot now as a result of promoting John Wick. The difference between action and stunts. So a stunt is when someone's set on fire, hit by a car, thrown off a cliff, whatever. Uh, Action is where the character is storytelling what they want to get and what they're willing to do to get it using the tools that they have at their disposal, which in this case is swords and stuff like that. So the one-on-one action across the series as a whole has been pretty below par and, and, and pretty naughty and badly shot for a lot of reasons, which I won't go into, because that's not the question. But um, for the large-scale spectacle battles, I really think they did a great job of these uh, overall. And I think in this season, they certainly brought the scale and the spectacle. And as with every other expression of the show's virtues and vices it fell down largely due to logic being used uh, as a... or just logic not being used, really. Uh, Just a matter of uh, getting people to where they needed to be on the chessboard to make the moments happen. Um, Talking about the Battle of Winterfell, uh, I've read people condemn it, and I've uh, seen people sort of sing its praises. Uh, One really interesting point that I think kind of frames the discussion around it the best it can be framed is about the initial Dothraki charge at the start of the Battle of Winterfell (laughs) right so the (laughs) in fact you guys go first and then I'll 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 bring in my rationale if you like but but what what was your immediate reaction to that Okay. Well, just just from my experience of playing Rome Total War (laughs) I I know you don't do that when defend Again, you can you can round it down to practicalities. Like one, or, or at least see some of the logic behind it. Is one like with all the lit swords charging into the blackness and going out one by one? Like, yeah, it's a cool shot. It's re- it's a really cool, gorgeous, nice shot. Uh, from a practical point of view, CGI horses are expensive. We need to get rid of those as quickly as possible. <laughs> But again, in terms of plot and logic, yeah, it makes no sense. It's you've just you've just sent them off to just die. Basically, they may as well have just joined the zombie horde like immediately, and that's basically what they did. In fact, the the tactics across Westeros has generally took a dip since Rob died, because I think he was the last one to legitimately use tactics to win a battle when he sacrificed a small portion of his army to like sneak around somewhere else or uh, i'm sure i can think and did that, that one happen off screen as well mm. the big yeah. battle did but yeah. i think we saw the small force get annihilated Got a little yeah. bit so like that, that first season had no battles in it you there was a lot there was a lot of cutting to black like Tyrion leads a charge and it cuts away and you wake up with him kind of knocked on the floor being found by those hill tribe people like he, there was, there was like the budget of that first season. It's very easy to forget. Was such that they couldn't have any mass battles. Mm. And the Night's Watch didn't have horses, 
because <laughs> they walked everywhere because they just they just they just didn't have the budget for it, which is yeah. crazy to and think. And the horses don't like the cold. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Rob. So yeah. So tell on us. the Dothraki charge, the mm. logic that I read and that made sense to me was that you have uh, a siege situation where Sansa has already established that they don't have the food to. Uh, essentially keep everyone operational uh, for very long simultaneously you have a force outside the wall that doesn't need to eat so at that point the Night King only needs to stand there until they die and he can do that for as long as he wants because he's bringing the long night with him so the Dothraki charge was effectively there to provoke uh, the Night King into a direct attack. And so they had to come outside the walls to make themselves look more vulnerable. They had to charge on the enemy to try and provoke them because they have a, a kind of savage and bestial nature. They're not the most intelligent uh, soldiers on the field. Um, and also, when you look at it from across the series perspective, it's revealed that they only actually lose half the Dothraki. And we see Jorah kind of beating a retreat with several other Dothraki as well uh, once that initial charge has failed. And so if you look at it as a provocation and a, and a we need to have a direct conflict now, so we are going to make you do that, that was a logic that after the fact I could kind of understand, kind of get behind, and it made me think maybe that's what the writers intended and maybe there was a defensible reason behind it. However, you then get into trebuchets outside the walls of Winterfell when you could have just fired them after the after the dead start running and just pummeled them for days on end. Uh, but they're outside the walls and so they immediately get toppled and, and taken out of action. Uh, the dragons are utterly useless but so are the white walkers who have ice spears that we have seen kill dragons and they never once get a shot off or even attempt to um and the night king brings in the storm which does him as much uh, harm as them because now he can't see where the dragons are either and he gets caught out just like they get caught out and so it kind of you know it, it's very ropey and it's very back and forth but the thing that the military strategists kind of cautioned us to remember is that these are live fire environments where nothing is going to anyone's plan. So it's the difference between a strategy and a tactic. So a strategy is what you plan to do, and then a tactic is what you have to come up with in response to what your opponent is doing. And so I think the the ugliness, the confusion of that wasn't necessarily the worst thing that I've ever seen, if you like. Mm. Um, and I, I could excuse it after the fact when i was watching viscerally and just as a human i was kind of like pretty dumb mm. <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, now, I'm... now you've explained that to me now yeah that does totally make sense <laughs> but i guess that's the question of do you need to be a military strategist to w get a show like that can't be yeah. their target audience so maybe they could no. have done a better job explaining it <laughs> okay here's my thing and um I, I got pretty frustrated with people talking about the uh, the military strategy element of the uh, this, the Battle of Winterfell because <laughs> if they had a perfect strategy and they pulled it off, this would have been the most boring hour of television <laughs> of all time. I never, ever, ever, ever want to see a battle scene or a fight scene where everything is perfectly executed because sure. that is dumb as shit. That is so boring. Com like Drama comes from conflict and not just literal conflict between two armies. Like Things have to be at stake and things have to be going wrong. Now, in the episode before the Battle of Winterfell, they told everyone what the plan was. <laughs> they actually have a map and they were like, we're just going to stand outside and like you know fight them. Um, because the thing is, what were they fighting against? Zombies? 
well, okay, sure, we'll fight zombies and some maybe a dragon, we don't know. Let's just hope for the best. And people, because we're living in the age of Reddit and Twitter where you've got hundreds of thousands of people debating every single kind of in and out of this that they can, you know, ad nauseum. And it makes me wonder, like, if we had Twitter and Reddit when the Lord of the Rings films were coming out, how many people would be talking about how dumb the Siege of Helm's Deep was, whereas no one at the time watching Helm's Deep was like, this is just unrealistic <laughs> strategy. Whereas, I mean, what was the fucking strategy? Lock the door and hope for the best. That was the strategy. They had nothing. They had nothing beyond lock the door. A bunch of elves turn up 10 minutes before the fight starts, and they didn't even know they were coming. And there's like 50 of those guys. So it's like, and, and no one says anything because the fight is is um, dramatic and you think it's going to go badly and then it comes good and then the goodies come in and stuff. And that's where the drama comes from and that's the excitement. And when the Battle of Winterfell was over, like Rob said, on a visceral level, I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, and I was totally caught up in the confusion of it. I was totally caught up in the, um, you know, the kind of the intensity of it. And if you stop and step back and think, well, hang on, we're going to come in at the end and, and the only people standing are the characters you recognise. <laughs> um, you know, more people must have survived. We know they did, but what's the point in putting them there? Because it's so confusing. If we see someone else, it'll be like, who's that? Um, but like I've said on Twitter and many times before, I spend most episodes of Game of Thrones asking who people are and, <laughs> and why they're there because I don't <laughs> understand a lot. Um, but I, I, I felt like in a show where you're going to watch a huge battle between what's essentially zombies, zombie giants um, a kind of like weird ice vampire uh, dragons, uh, kind of like Mongol knockoffs, pound shop Mongols and you know, like you know Vikings and shit and people are arguing about like you know charges and counter charges I'm thinking there's got to be a point where you've got to say come on I, I mean, think, no show's got to abide by its own Yeah, laws. it's, it's kind of hard to argue the realism of that scenario in particular. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a, the show is a victim of its own success in as much as people are, are so obsessed with it being right now and so obsessed with the idea, particularly the idea that, like, Game of Thrones is some sort of proxy for understanding the Middle Ages, which it isn't. But, like, <laughs> yeah. think back to, like, things like the Battle of the Blackwater... Like, and where, like, if I think back to the, the kind of plot points of that, the, the plot point is they sail the ships up the river, but then mm -hmm. there's wildfire, but then a load of people get there anyway, and then Tyrion leads a charge out of the mudgate, but that doesn't really matter, and then all of these people turn up on horses and kill them. And, mm -hmm. like, like, in a way... That was not an interesting kind of military kind of what that wasn't an interesting kind of watching somebody play Rome Total War on Twitch kind of experience. <laughs> but it's it was the fact that at that stage you were still so excited by those characters. You were so into Davos, you were so into Tyrion, you were so into the thing that was going on between Sansa and the Hound or Cersei inside the crypt. The, inside the um, the Red Keep or whatever, it was actually the battles don't matter. You were completely driven by by your kind of engagement with those with those characters, and I think it's almost like people have become so inured to their to their these characters as kind of excited, well-rounded TV characters that they now want this kind of additional thing on top of it. Of also, I want to see 
interesting back and forth battles. And actually, that's never really been what the show is about. The Battle of the Bastards is just mm. Jon Snow fucking up for 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, totally, and yeah, then, for sure. Like, and, then, and then Sansa comes. And that's really mm. satisfying, probably because it's such a good arc for Sansa. Mm. I think also it is a matter of how the directors have chosen to frame it though because in those situations you are following Jon through it and it is Mm. almost like a first person experience same with Tyrion when he's in the Battle of the Blackwater you know we're seeing it almost through his eyes there's a very narrow lens on it and in this season more than any others we've really pulled back we've really drawn out and looked at the conflict on that kind of more elemental more broad uh, world impacting scale and I think that's why you're starting to see the holes because you're not in the centre of the confusion in the way that you were before mm, and yeah. yeah and I think it's also having fan favourite fatigue every, <laughs> you like everybody in that scene and in the um, in the, the Battle of Winterfell scene you, you care about Sam and you care about Brienne and you care about Tormund and usually they're kind of spread around so you're like oh it's a, it's a Brienne scene now I'm enjoying this but actually having them all smushed together means that you're kind of like, there's not somebody whose narrative you're desperate to follow or when it's n- the camera's not on your favourite one, you're like slightly uninterested about what's happening to Grey Worm or whatever. Nice, yeah. Mm. Although yeah. Grey Worm if... did well, I have to point out. He was the only person <laughs> who actually like delivered in that battle and did what he was meant to do all the way through. Mm, yeah. Oh, again, again. I thought Grey Worm was going to cop it in the Battle for Winterfell because, you know, when he's uh, is having the conversation with uh, <laughs> yes. I can't remember his name, the Missandei. her name, Masande. It's like I, you could just see it. It's like he's it, like the guy in a Nam, like a Vietnam movie. Yeah. Like, oh, you, you got a girl back home? <laughs> like, yeah. When, when we get back, um, we're going to open a bed and breakfast. It's like, no, you're not, buddy. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was the cop who was two days from retirement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was like, we couldn't make this entire show um, episode like just telling each other tweets we've read over the last couple of days. But one of my <laughs> favourites was congratulations to Grey Worm, the first black man to make it all the way through a violent TV show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he never, apart from outside the gate of Winterfell, he you never, I never really felt that he was in a sense of peril because he knew what to do with the uh, the right end of a spear. Yeah. Yeah, he he kind of he was a dependable person who would always deliver death, which is you know nice to see. Mm-hmm. Even though um, I prefer his, uh, do you, have you guys seen like what he does on the side? He's like a like a singer and a rapper. No, no. Oh uh, yeah, just Google him. Yeah, he's oh, please good. please tell me he's on Spotify. I'm I'm gonna look now. Hold his on. name's oh, mate, yeah. Rally Richie, I think, in real life. Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna just talk a little bit before we 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 wrap this up about. Um, the fan, and I'm going to use the word fan in, in inverted commas here, the fan reaction and how it's kind of endemic of what seems to be a depressing cycle in a, a kind of some kind of popular property goes in a direction that is not wanted by a small, very vocal minority of people who are in the fandom, if we can call it that, Mm. And we get some of the most embarrassing scenes um, um, in in kind of like memory. And I'm talking specifically about Game of Thrones. It's, it's already happened with uh, the Ghostbusters reboot. It happened with The Last Jedi. And it happens and it seems to be uh, happening more and more 
for things where the uninformed <laughs> appear to just jump in and make some kind of bold proclamation that they don't fully understand. And <laughs> I feel like what I'm trying to say is, is that me talking about the some of the Game of Thrones discourse has been quite refreshing in that you've got professional writers stepping in and saying, like for the way we're talking about pantsers and plotters, actually giving an insider's view of how we're at the point where um, we've got a show that is jarred because it's it's two shows put together. To contrast that, you've got a lot of people who have grown up watching Cinema Sins videos and <laughs> scream, <sighs> scream, this is bad writing. And what they mean by that, and it was the same, like, you know, problem, same accusation that was leveled at the ba- the, the Last Jedi, which is, is bad writing. And uh, what they're really trying to say is, this didn't happen the way I wanted it to. You've imagined it wrong, is what they're saying. Because when they're saying it's bad writing to any of these things, they're not talking about structure, they're not talking about subtext, they're talking about the fact that what they wanted to happen didn't happen. And we're seeing that in just writ large for Game of Thrones because, like I said, every single person imagined their own ending to Game of Thrones and they imagined how they saw all these moments that we knew were coming, Clegane Bowl, the Battle of Winterfell, the the storming King's Landing, all these things. And we're in a place now where all those things have been imagined in such detail (laughs) that you've got the backlash, which is... I, I mean, I, I'm st- I'm struggling to get my head round well, it's, the the sense of entitlement that some people have. It's all Sonic the Hedgehog's fault, though, isn't it? It's like because <laughs> <laughs> once somebody's agreed to like cave on Sonic's crotch, it just kind of fuels the fire, doesn't it? So mm. okay, that's okay, that's different because the design for Sonic the Hedgehog was an abomination against God <laughs> and just everything. It was awful. But as you say, it's like it is that sort of sense of just. I say entitlement. It, I can't imagine what kind of mindset you have to be as you watch a thing and then you raise a petition and go, I, it didn't end how I like it, change it. Mm. It's, it's, I, what do they think will happen? Do they honestly think, like, HBO and the showrunners and every actor and everyone and all the money involved, they will see this petition and turn around <laughs> and go, all right. <laughs> we're going to delete every dvd that exists um and you know give us nine months we'll be back but with it, something that you want but it is the thing that like just to play devil's advocate for a moment um companies like hbo or disney do love to kind of provoke and sort of feed upon the idea that they've got rabid fans don't they they like mm-hmm. there is like if you look at like the announcements or playing like making the the dropping of a trailer such a massive thing and in a kind of Game of Thrones-esque turnabout, you put all of this energy as a company into creating these people, and then in the end, they turn on you. Mm. You know, so, like, like they, and people are very... Like, there is this idea of, oh, yeah, this is the Game of Thrones fandom, and HBO really want that because it sells mugs and, like, Lannister drinks coasters or whatever, but then... Mm-hmm people do end up having a massive sense of ownership of it rather than being able to stand back and view it as, like, a thing that is good and bad by turns, you know? Mm. And and naming their children after fictional mass murderers. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry, but if you couldn't see Daenerys 
burning King's Landing down, given the fact that she said it every every season for like six years, you're, you're probably a little short sighted. There's like a lot of seven or eight year olds that are gonna they're gonna have some their parents are gonna have to explain some stuff mm-hmm. to them at some point. Why, mummy? Why did you name me after this horrid lady? The weird thing for me is because we live in times where everything you can just say it and get other people to agree with you. It's weird to think that so many film series and f- so many TV shows don't stick the landing or they have endings that are divisive. Um, and I'm thinking, I, I really can't think of too many TV shows, especially ones that have gone on for more than four or five seasons, that have had a whole whole uh, kind of wholly accepted satisfactory ending. Like Jason Alexander went on Twitter today and he was like, I know a little bit about divisive <laughs> endings this season. Um, and I'm just thinking like people didn't like the ending of the Sopranos, but yeah. people hold that yeah. up of being the, you know, the greatest TV show of all time. The wire, the, the, the fifth season is below the standard of the other four. Godfather 3 is a fucking awful film. Um, like, more of Star Wars is bad than is good. But and that, it's like, you know, it's fine to have things. Yeah, things can be good and, and bad. That's, that's why things used to end, is because they mm. became bad. And people were, were yeah. not going to make any more of this anymore. Um, yeah. Can I say something on that, actually? There was a, like, I've seen a lot of people comparing the show to Lost. And I think mm-hmm. the big difference between like this and the Lost ending is all Lost ever was is the question of what's going on. And Embrit, mm-hmm. like, and all of their character development was completely kind of like in service to the exploration of this mystery. And I think, like, when the dust settles, people will accept that actually Game of Thrones was never about really who's going to sit on the Iron Throne. And I think mm-hmm. that we'll be able to look back on it as a thing more like The Sopranos. It's not as good as The Sopranos, but more like The Sopranos, <laughs> where there's mm. this thing of, oh, well, that's how it ended because it had to end. But there's all this chaos is a ladder stuff that's happened along the way that is actually what you take away from it. Mm. And ultimately, you'll, you'll remember what you want to remember yeah. from the show. I, I love Arrested Development, but Jesus Christ, the last three seasons, <laughs> the net, the Netflix years, yeah. have been yeah. so painfully awful. I compared yeah. it. I compared it to the first three seasons of Arrested Development being like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the last two seasons being the Hobbit movies, the ones that you see all of out of the sense of, well, we need to get this over and done with. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of obligation that you're watching it rather than any kind of enjoyment, yeah. that kind of complete completionism. But, like, it doesn't take away from what's good for me. And in some way, I think that there's a lot of people who feel like, oh, just because something, ex- a part of this exists that isn't how I wanted it, the whole thing is awful and everyone's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I f- I think I can, like, my relation to it is, like, again, like, because I've been shouting at people on Twitter, as is my want, um, like, all right, it's it's the worst thing ever, it's ended, and I'm just like, oh, sweet summer child, you don't know, you weren't there, like, because my relation is, well, I'm quite a jaded person anyway, but uh, how I relate to it is there was this little show a long time ago called Battlestar Galactica. Oh, wow, Mm -hmm. yeah. Which, uh, quite kind of similar to Game of Thrones at the time, was considered like one of the best TV shows on TV at the time. Up until like the last three episodes, where it literally shit the bed, <laughs> like all over the place, due to one creative decision, and retro retroactively made a ton of stuff that happened previously make no sense mm-hmm. at all. But 
would I tell people to watch Battlestar Galactica? Absolutely, because it's great, and it's basically a submarine drama in space about a group of old men around a table arguing they're running out of food. That's it. Mm. But I assure you, it's great. Watch it. And I think Game of Thrones is very much the same. Like, there is so much... The journey itself, there is so much great stuff in it, and you have to decide for yourself, is it ultimately worth the journey to the end? And I do think it do. It's, it is easily one of the greatest TV shows of all time, or at least in the top five, easily. And if you think otherwise, just the thick. <laughs> that's, that's pretty harsh on Biker Grove. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that, that's in its own little separate category. <laughs> oh, that okay. will that will stand the test of time. And I suppose if you look at the shows that did end satisfactorily, like they just weren't creating this thing where stuff needed to be wrapped up. Like I heard someone say, like, Deadwood did it. Why can't Game of Thrones do it? Mm. And, of course, the reasoning is that the, the plot of Deadwood kind of meandered through these intractable situations and... You couldn't really like Deadwood's plot never really moved on from one episode to the next. It was just mm-hmm. a fresh, horrible problem, and then one day, <laughs> an even bigger problem arrived, and went, that's it, show's over. But yeah. well, well, also with Deadwood, that like the true ending of Deadwood, if you look in a history book, <laughs> yeah, is not great. And they're kind of trying to avoid that. I guess, well, there's the movie coming out, yeah. so I guess they might it's be approaching to up as well. What they? happens? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a theory of storytelling called the idea diamond, and the idea that you know all your plot em- elements and etc. need to expand to their widest point, but then you need to trim them all off and, and bring it to a point at the end. And that's what Game of Thrones has attempted to do. And I, th- I think if the, if it has a single sin that c- can be held against it, it's that it didn't start narrowing off the idea diamond early enough. And that's because they were following the books. It's because everybody loved all the characters. It's because it was so, so successful that you have this very truncated feeling to the ending. And they chose, uh, rightly or wrongly, to go with spectacle for the ending and say, you know, there were no battles in season one, so we're going to have all the battles in uh, the final season. And stuff like that, I think, for me... I Looking back on this season, while it's still fresh... It was not my favourite. Um, I would, I, I fall on the side that says that it wasn't even particularly good. But looking at the series as a whole, absolutely still one of the best. And if you have to have a rushed ending to get so much more of everything else, every single one of those fifteen-minute conversations, or for me, my favourite scene is. Uh, around the, which they kind of call back to in the final episode is they're all sat around the table and nobody says a word to each other in King's Landing and it's all about what chair they're going to pick and <laughs> each one of them picks a different chair or moves their chair or decides that they want to be close to the king or whatever and it's completely non-verbal and it's hilarious and engaging and it holds your attention if they hadn't have done what they did with the ending if they hadn't have made it imbalanced so the ending felt rushed you'd have lost countless numbers of those moments so look at those moments that you love look at your favorite moments as gifts that the rushed ending bought you Mm. yeah i'd agree with that like my favorite 
episode of the whole last series was the one before the Battle of Winterfell. Yeah. Because mm. it had in just some of my fa- like my favorite thing of this entire ser- like of all the series is, is just characters meeting together and just chatting. Yeah. Yeah. Just just talking and it's like it's great. I could watch this forever. It's awesome. And again, you look through the series, it's like that's when it's again there's great moments where it's just these different yeah. characters from different walks of life and scenarios interacting and seeing what happens sometimes you know there's a nice chat sometimes there's a murder it's you know <laughs> that's that, that's that's how it goes and that moment where they all they're all drinking the night before the battle that was oh i love that scene yeah, but that i love was, it that was kind of your moment of caesura that's like the bit where gandalf and is it merry or pippin have that little conversation before the the Witch King lands on the walls of Minas Tirith, or about what even, happens after death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or even like the bit where like Harry Potter talks to the voice of um, Dumbledore or to the ghost of Dumbledore in that kind of white space. And before all this stuff happens, you have this little moment of your characters going, "What are we all doing here?" And like mm. in, in like in a way. If you've made <laughs> if the story's ended, we go. Doesn't matter what happens next. Brienne has become a knight. That would have been, and then fights oh, in the. Oh, that, that's that scene made me just yeah. well up. That, it's like she was so happy, and again thought she was going to die because of that. <laughs> I I I just loved. Well, again, I I loved the knighting. I loved how honest Tormund was when he was like, you know, if I could knight you, I would do you a do- I would do it a dozen times. And again, it's like he's so heartfelt when he said that. But the best bit was when. Uh, Oh, what's what's his name? Ah, oh, Braveheart. I forgot his name. Uh, her squire. Um, Pod. 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 When she was like, "Oh, can I have a drink of wine?" and she goes like, basically, his mum. Like, you can have half a cup before the battle. <laughs> but but then Tyrion just pours him a full cup, going like, "Go on, get 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 that down." Yeah, like, yeah. I just just little little character moments like that are and just a, wonderful. And of course, that 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 was the scenes that they've really earned by making you like all these characters. Then you you really enjoy that, but it's then well now they have to kill each other or decide what side they're on, and it's never going to be satisfied. That's never going to satisfy the fans, is it? Because you've got the ones you like, and you'd like them all to end up on the same side. Mm, yeah, um, Lewis, do you have a, a favourite scene of the series as a whole? Before I drop mine, of the whole, the entire. Mm, yeah. Oh my god. Um, all of season eight, or all of the entire show, the entire Game of Thrones. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put mine in there to give you some uh, on, yeah. kind of brain, brain space to think about it. Um, but mine is uh, the bath scene with uh, Brienne and Jamie. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that's a good scene. I mean, I think it comes in season three. Jamie, three or four. Jamie's lost his hand. Uh, Brienne is escorting him somewhere. I forget where they're going, but uh, back to King's Landing. That's right. And Jamie, who to that point we haven't really understood the Kingslayer name that he's been given, and he talks for the first time, kind of honestly and openly, without bravado or hubris, about why he killed the Mad King. And also, there's just so much going on there. But they're both the both characters are like super vulnerable, and they're like you know, there's this big trust issue between them, and it's just a remarkable scene, um, like beautifully acted between you know two super talented actors who, who don't get a great deal to do, um, especially Brienne in the uh, the acting department sometimes, um, and yeah, I just love it. If I think about Game of Thrones, um, it's very easy to to kind of 
think about the big moments, uh, the the twists, the the shocking bits. But that's one of my my favourite bits of the whole show. My my kind of very favourite bit of the show, I'd say. So, Lewis, you've had on, I, I padded that out. I dragged I'm, it out. What I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna get um, two of them. Um, mm-hmm. I think I really love the mountain and the viper fight because mm. it's so like even though I'd read the book beforehand and I knew what happened, they had plotted it so well that I was certain that, like, Oberon Martel was going to win that fight. And you were so behind him. And then he gets his skull pock. I I, I still haven't got over that. It it still hurts to this very day. Um, He's such a beautiful man. And you know what else I really loved was the scenes between Arya and um, Tywin Lannister, where they just have a conversation about, like... What it like? What's important and stuff like that. And I thought that was really, yeah. I really, really enjoyed that. I think, yeah. Though, like, just the the quality of the acting and the kind of back and forth there was really good. Mm. Yeah, Rob, you touched on it earlier when you said about the the one on one fights being yeah. largely a failure from your point of view. Yeah. Um, with the mountain viper fight being being something that is talked about as one of the most shocking moments. Um, what's your what's your goddamn beef, man? Is it, <laughs> is it, is it is, and is it hard being kind of trained in stage combat to separate yourself from the technical, and uh, in, like and and kind of take a step back and look at it as a as an emotional piece, or is, is do you think it's a failure on both counts? I I think that's a fair criticism of me that you've gotten in early there for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I do certainly struggle with that. However. To me, if a fight is logical and it makes sense and both characters are going after what they want with the tools that they have available to them uh, in the most visceral way uh, and they're using things like their skills and their willpower and things like that uh, and the moves that they use to express that uh, are logical and continuous and escalate, um, that you can get a better emotional reaction out of that uh, than not doing so. So, Oberon versus Oberon. Sorry, that's Shakespeare. Oberon versus Mountain <laughs> uh, is uh, is an example of the tendency of the show to go towards Star Wars prequel territory when they want to make something a big moment for the sake of it being mm-hmm. a big moment. And Hound versus Mountain very much went in that direction as well for me. Um, so maybe it's the mountain's fault, I don't know. But <laughs> Oberyn Martell does the same no-handed cartwheel, I think, four or five times <laughs> over the process of that fight. Um, he breaks his spear and it's just replaced with another one um, with very little uh, fanfare or, or reaction from anybody around. Uh, I think it would have been interesting, for instance, to see him use the two halves of the spear um, and have to defend himself with the weapon that he brought to the fight. It's his fault if he wanted to use a wooden spear against the massive executioners sword i think oberyn's tendency to uh, flare so doing all the kind of spinning of the stick um is utterly pointless and deeply frustrating and to me when i was watching it i was like oh they're doing the indiana jones thing where he's just going to cut him in half he's just going to flare flare the weapon a bunch and then he's just chop him in half and that's it and it's done um and instead we had uh, the sort of Princess Bride <laughs> treatment of it um, with the twist ending. And I, I get that that's where you're going with it. But I think, you know, Princess Bride did a better job of uh, making the fight feel uh, engaging and meant by the characters. Um, 
It's one of those things you can go back and forth over, you know, was Oberyn's logic to tease him out and was it to wound him like he's a bullfighter and all this kind of thing. Um, But fundamentally for me, watching it, I saw a load of stuff and nonsense instead of really great technique in context. So to me, a good fighter is not the guy who can spin his sword the best, it's the guy who can play his opponent the best. And there was no playing of the opponent there, and obviously ultimately that's why he died, and he needs to die, and that's fine. Um, But I feel like I'm descending into uh, an area of absolute boredom that only I probably (laughs) exist in. Uh, So I'll I'll draw it to a close there. But in a nutshell, the problem is that they have stunt coordinators who do a very different job doing fight directing. And so things like fight logic, like, um, I guess, drawing upon historical techniques to create interesting moments uh, within the violence things like that, and and psychological realism as well, Uh, kind of play second fiddle to rule of cool, which for me is is where I end up again at the Star Wars prequels. Mm. I know, but he's so handsome, though. He is. He really is. And I think... So charming. And you can end it the same way with his head getting caved in, because that was amazing. (laughs) And I think they they gave him, like, a bunch of stuff to do that just reflected the character, and I think... What what that fight is about, like, why I think I like that fight is it's not a fight between um, um, like two characters. It's a fight between two ideas that are central to Game of Thrones. The idea that like there might be justice and fairness, and the good guy would win. Like Inigo Montoya will get his revenge, but actually the people who have power, other people who have power, and you can't really change that. And ultimately, they'll pop your skull. So I think probably I enjoy like I, I accept what you're what you're saying obviously, but I think what the impact for that is that that outcome is the show in a nutshell. That is Peter <laughs> Baelish talking about like I thought I could beat up Eddard Stark's bro- um, brother and win- what's, he, what's he called? I forgot now. I thought I could beat up Eddard's brother and win the hand of Kate, but I couldn't because I thought like the good guy wins in stories and they don't. And what you have to do is be sly. And yeah, Cersei has that line as well yeah. about power is power, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I totally, I totally um, acknowledge that. I think that's, a, I think that's a great take on it, and I think it, it's uh, that's a great thing to take from it. For me, I think you could achieve that while having a guy whose sister was raped and murdered that he talks about repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Probably try and kill the guy that did it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. To be honest, I. I think the Star Wars prequels approach to fighting is the best approach where like <laughs> you just keep going at like the longer the better. I'd like to see that <laughs> that fight take up the whole episode um, with like more cartwheels and like, you know, you know, that point where Sideshow Bob steps on the rakes and it stops being funny and then it keeps going and going and going and it becomes funny again. You're like, I've, I've lost interest in this fight. I feel no sense of peril, but if it goes on for another hour and goes to a more dramatic <laughs> locale, like maybe inside a volcano then maybe yeah that's hilarious because you just described the hound versus the mountain in as many words that's exactly what they did (laughs) yeah it's a classic uh kind of D &D, uh trick this fight's boring let's stick it in a room that's collapsing (laughs) um and then yeah perhaps that'll give it you know rather than just roll initiative and fight Uh, there i read one of we're talking about like um this episode could just be us talking about tweets and memes about, about Game of Thrones. My funniest thing I think I found all season was someone who described all of the Battle of Winterfell in 
pretty decent detail using um, the rules of Warhammer Fantasy Battle Second Edition. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it was just wow. like the Dothraki clearly have the frenzy trait, which means that if they are within charge distance of an enemy, they have to charge. Um, and it was, like, it was pretty accurate for you know the nerds out there. It is. See, yeah. see, why can't why can't the internet be more like that? Like, no, no petitions. No chauvinism, no things like that. Let's just do funny stuff <laughs> like that. That's great. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, thank you very much, guys, for uh, joining me on this uh, roundup of, of uh, what has been, a, like I say, a divisive season. But there was a lot to like in there and a lot to love about the show uh, overall. Has anyone got anything to plug before we go? Uh, anyone want to tell any of our dozens of listeners um, like what they're up to uh, in a kind of shameless act of self-promotion? You can follow me on Twitter at Lewis at Lewis Kerno, L E W I S K E R N O W. Um, Love that. because why not? Rob? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Rob Miles, and that's M Y L E S. Uh, and I have a product, I guess, that I can plug, uh, which will be useful to probably 5% of your <laughs> listening audience. <laughs> About 12 uh, I've people. I've created a, a tool for actors called the Shakespeare Deck, which helps you to get more out of your Shakespeare text work. Uh, yeah. Okay, and Pip? Uh, well, I, I'm involved in all manner of podcasty type things and of a random poop, uh, and it all flows uh, through my Twitter, which is housebrokengeek, all one word. Uh, I am popping up to Edinburgh Fringe this year in in uh, August, not October. August. Yeah, don't go October, it'll be well. No, no, it'll be there. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing yet, but I will be there in some capacity, maybe appearing on other people's shows and stuff. So we shall see. But it's uh, look, check me out on on the Twitters, which is at Housebroken Geek. Okay, wicked. Um, well, thank you very much, guys. Um, say goodbye to everyone because you've been great. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.